0: California Frontier Podcast, Episode 12. The California Frontier Podcast is dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. I'm Damian Bassage and I'm your host. So today we have a special edition of the California Frontier podcast. It's always kind of funny when the shoe is put on the other foot. And in the case with my podcast, this is what happened. I'm usually the one doing the interviewing. But recently, I was contacted by Jordan Maddox. And Jordan is a junior high school teacher who's passionate about California and its history. And he has a wonderful podcast appropriately titled History of California. So he reached out to me and said, Damien, looks like you and I are doing kind of the same thing. Would you be interested in being on my podcast? And I, of course, said yes. And we had a great conversation about issues related to the uh, transfer from Spain to Mexico in terms of dominion over California, how Latin American independence kind of got started, and how that affected California, among other things. And so I really hope that you're going to enjoy this uh, podcast. And of course, this time you're going to mainly be listening to my voice instead of someone else's. But if you get the chance afterwards, I would really recommend that you go over to the History of California podcast, subscribe, and listen to what he's got going on. It's great, and he's going to really dive into also issues more related to the more modern history of California, though he spent a good deal of time working on the time period that, that we're particularly interested in in this podcast. So once again, I want to thank Jordan for giving me this opportunity. I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the History of California podcast. I've got a special guest on today, Dr. Damian Besich. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. you got yeah. it. Um, and we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. Um, our most recent podcast was about ranchos, and so we're kind of segueing into uh, a change in government that's happening, um, and so um, I brought our guest on to kind of help us understand and make that transition well. Um, Dr. Bassich runs a website called the California Frontier Project. Is that right?
0: That's right, California Frontier Project. Can you tell
1: us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I started that um, because I I've been working on California, especially Spanish and Mexican California history for several years. And um, I had friends whose kids were in fourth grade and going to schools in California and they wanted, they would always ask me to help them with their lessons and things like that. And and then of course, uh, I have my own children who started to get older and, and go into school. And so I figured that the best way to help people to help a lot of people was to put out information on the internet because that's where people go to search for things so it started that way and i also i also belong to the california missions foundation and every year i would go to their conferences and hear really fascinating things that i would never have guessed about the california pre-statehood era and I just thought, wow, there's got to be a way to share this kind of information with people that's people who didn't go to the conference and that's and not in a scholarly journal, let's say. So that's that's how that came about. And then it's it's just, it's been going ever since.
1: Yeah, it's it's an amazing uh, website and I recommend you all visit it. It's, um, you know, I, I go there when I'm starting to explore a subject and I, I see what I can find, and it's a beginning. You know, I always say that, you know, it's always good to start with stuff that's the most accessible before you try to dip into scholarly research or,
0: uh, you know, those, those massive history books that, you know, sometimes are recommended. Um, but, right, yeah. And I, I kind of feel the same way because on a lot of those things, I'm not an expert. And so to, to write about something is a great way for me to learn about it, right? Maybe I don't know anything about it. And I'll go look it up and study it and then write about it. And then I know.
1: Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the transition between uh, Spanish control of this part of North America and the, the War of Independence. So I was hope you could give the listeners a little bit of a background. So what uh, what what precipitated uh, this war for independence that started in the early 19th century?
0: Yeah, uh, quite a few things. And I, I think it's good to see California and especially the Spanish presence in California within the bigger context of Latin America um, as a whole. And of course, Spain within the context of Europe. I It goes back almost a century or more than a century because for 300 years there had been one family on the throne of Spain or direct um, uh, relatives which were the Habsburgs who also were um, the leaders of what's called the Holy Roman Empire and became eventually the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in 1700 the last Spanish Habsburg king uh, Charles II, he dies, and he dies without an heir. And so that brings about a big struggle, of course. You know, when there's an empty throne, there's lots of people who want to take control of it. And basically, the upshot is that a French family, the Bourbons, who actually to this day are still the same family that's on the throne of Spain. The bourbon family wins out and now you have a french family on the throne in spain right and so um, that means two things one that there's there's sort of a break in succession that there's there's a new way of doing things there's somebody on the throne who's not born in spain whose whose family hasn't been there for hundreds of years and secondly because france is the center of what we call the enlightenment, right? This new way of thinking that, that really puts a lot of emphasis on human reason, right? Um, this this also introduces a new way of thinking into how the Spanish governed Latin America, governed their empire, not just Latin America. And when I say an emphasis on reason, it's not like prior to that people didn't use reason, but there's this idea that really through human reason, you can we can really come to know just about everything. And if, if we apply our reason really well, that life will be very orderly and um, things will go much better than they have in the past. And that's when the encyclopedias start coming out, etc. So the, the new Spanish monarchs, the Bourbons, they introduced this way of doing things into how they govern their colonies or how they govern their empire. And the empire, the Spanish Empire, is very far flung. So we're not just talking about um, uh, Spain and Portugal. Well, Portugal is independent at this time. We're not just talking about Europe. We're talking about South America, North America, Central America. We're also talking about the Philippines, so Asia. So it's a huge, vast area. And up until this time, the way that the Habsburgs, the previous rulers of Spain, had tended to govern was, what we're going to do is, the important thing is that everybody acknowledge who's the king, who's the emperor, that the king and emperor are in Spain, and that Usually there's a viceroy who's his representative. But beyond that, we pretty much let local people run things. And we pretty much uh, try and incorporate local traditions into how things are done. Because that's also a good way to keep people happy. You know, if you sort of say, look, you can keep your old... Um, village you can keep your old for example with Indian people you can keep your old village organizations etc but just there's this the king is in Spain and you have to send tribute to him etc
1: so it's kind of like a little bit like the Roman Empire in some ways in terms of letting let, giving people autonomy and some cultural freedoms as long as they respect certain elements of control
0: yeah I think very much so uh, I think and and it's it's not a uh, coincidence that the king the Habsburg king was the holy roman emperor right yeah yeah, yeah. so um and it was a very paternalistic so the the model was a family that the king as the father and uh, everybody else as his children and of course the church played a big role in that the 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 catholic church being also a, a model where you have the Pope, and priests, bishops, etc., who, who function as, as fathers oftentimes, right? Now, there's that, that kind of model. But the Bourbons had a different way of looking at things, uh, and they were very much about centralized authority. They were very much about, okay, we're going to think things through, and we're going to come up with the most efficient way to organize things. And that means also uh, removing a lot of local autonomy. And... Making sure that um, that the rules and regulations that come out of Madrid, say in this case, get translated into the local territories. So, people start to chafe at this. And the people who most start to chafe at this way of doing things, and once again, I'm talking all over Latin America, uh, are... The European descendants, especially the criollos, right—the people whose families uh, were pretty much pure Spanish, right—and they were the ones who already had most power in society, you know. Um, and they sort of enjoyed this idea of not a ton of interference from from the from the mother country, from Spain, but. Starting in the seventeen hundreds, there is a lot more interference, and there is a lot more uh, suspicion from Madrid, from the capital, of people who are born in the New World. They, they don't. It becomes a lot harder for them to rise to the to the ranks of um, uh, important roles in society. They would much rather um, the Spanish Crown at this point much rather have somebody born in Spain send them over. Than trust somebody who, who's from the Americas at this point. So this sort of sentiment goes on. And also the other thing is um, the, the, the new way, this, this new enlightenment way of looking at things is not so keen on the church. That before there was a, there was a big, um, there was a lot of uh, collaboration between the church and the crown. And there's less so because the crown now, ha, you know, thinks of the church as part of the state, and and it really should be following our orders. So, people in the Americas who tended to be uh, more conservative, more traditional, started to say, "Well, hmm, this we don't like how uh, this whole new way of looking at the church is is uh, being imposed on us." So these two things start to create a lot of unrest amongst. Uh, Spanish-Americans, Latin-Americans, mostly from the upper classes because they're the ones who are are really uh, care most about power. Right. Um, And people begin. And and then, you know, another huge event happens, which which really um, which really causes a lot of consternation in the new world, which is the expulsion of the Jesuit order. You know, the Jesuits were a very important uh, Catholic religious group, um, priests, uh, who originated, the order originated in Spain in the, in the 16th century uh, by a man named um, Ignatius of Loyola, who was an ex-soldier, became a priest, dedicated his life to uh, spreading the gospel, spreading Catholicism. And in Latin America, in Europe, but also in Latin America, the Jesuits became very prominent as an order especially as teachers. They founded universities. They educated um, a lot of students, especially the upper classes of both criollos and indigenous people. And they had missions throughout Latin America. But they began to be seen with a lot of suspicion in Europe. Um, They began to be accused of plotting against the crowns of Europe. And at a certain point, uh, the king of Spain ordered them expelled from uh, Spanish from his dominions in uh, the Americas, and this is in sixteen in seventeen sixty seven, right? And so the Jesuits were very popular, and uh, and in fact that's why we have Franciscan missions in California because the Jesuits were expelled and the Franciscans were asked to take over their missions in California. So all of these things are causing a lot of um, frustration among the once again among the upper classes in Spanish America, and then of course uh, new ideas are spreading about democracy. Uh, not everybody believes in them, but some do. Uh, but a lot, whatever your your location on the on the spectrum of ideology, there's a lot of frustration with Spain and how they're how they're um, Governing their territories in the New World. So, then what happens? This uh, upstart French general named Napoleon Bonaparte heard of uh, starts. Yeah, you heard of him, right? A yeah. <laughs> little guy who always has his hand in his in his shirt. Yep. You know. Napoleon, after, after the French Revolution, he, he becomes the most powerful general in Europe, and he, he's, he's taking over uh, huge swaths of territory in Europe. And in 1808, he, his armies uh, go into Portugal, and along the way, they stop in Spain and occupy Spain. And the Spanish um, royal family is forced to flee, and Napoleon uh, installs his brother Joseph on the throne, right? Right. And if you go to if you go to Madrid, you know there's a big uh, billboard, neon billboard for Tio Pepe Brandy, and that's uh, in honor of, uh, or in in honor, jokingly in honor of of Joseph Jose Bonaparte uh, Pepe, his brother. And so this is the this this, so then people in the Americas are thinking, okay, so the the King of Spain is now in exile. We've got an invader. we've got Napoleon occupying the country what are we gonna do are we gonna fight for Spain Spain is occupied or is this now the time to make a move and really assert independence and that's really what starts to happen is that all over Latin America um, independence movements spring up including in Mexico and um, you know between 1810 and 1820 you have you have all of these uh, what were territories of the Spanish crown now uh, breaking off under uh, generals like Simon Bolivar or um, uh, Miguel de San Martin down in the south, you know uh, down in south, in the south of South Southern Cone, South America. And to make a long story short, uh, by the time Napoleon is defeated, and uh, the king of Spain is allowed to return in 1814, people have moved on in Latin America. And not only that, but the king of Spain, when he does return, uh, Fernando VII, um, who people were really looking forward to, uh, to be this new forward-thinking ruler, he comes back and he really, um, when he returns... He, is, he very much represses the movements both in Spain toward more democracy and in Latin America. And that's what really pushes things um, to war. And like I said, by 1820, 21, um, Spain is not able to, to defeat these insurrections. It's, it's, Latin America is too far away. Uh, things the, the upper classes of Spanish America have have decided that independence is the way we want to go, um, and there are different reasons that different groups have, but they're all kind of united in the fact that they don't um, that they don't want to remain as part of Spain, which is also interesting because um, indigenous people, for the most part, tend to be uh, loyal to the King of Spain tend to want to maintain the traditional uh, system.
1: That seems of course, like a, mm-hmm. a really strong parallel with uh, if we think about kind of the American revolution with the English colonies, um, you know, and, and thinking about the revolution in terms of these, you know, who originated it and what ideas were being promulgated and uh, <laughs> kind of the upper classes really pushing for something. Um, do you see a lot of similarities between, the Mexican War for Independence and the American
0: Revolutionary War. Yeah, um, definitely. And I think you know, since since um, in Latin America the, the wars for independence are later, and they definitely look to people like Washington as as models, right? In fact, there's a um, there's a, a a famous essay by Montalvo, a Chilean writer about Washington and Bolivar Bolivar who was the big liberator of Latin America of South America and how those two are very similar but had very different circumstances to deal with of course Mexico is its own particular situation because the the beginnings of Mexican independence start with this priest Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla right, uh, in Guanajuato who very much leads uh, an indigenous revolt. Most of his uh, people, most of his soldiers, are 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 indigenous uh, people from the area. And of course, that rebellion is eventually crushed. But the idea of of independence, you know, after 1810, the idea of independence in Mexico is is still very strong. And of course. Uh, other leaders come up later to take his place and once again by 1821 um, there's, there's a new uh, government in Mexico but it's a it's a very conservative one also though very, the, the man who winds up um, also like in Latin America the man who winds up emerges as the leader of, of Mexican independence is a general named uh, Miguel Turbide. And he's very conservative. Uh, what he wants to see and his supporters want to see Mexico as an empire, as a monarchy that's connected to Spain, maybe like as a sister, um, but that's independent. And um, the uh, Catholicism is, is established as the the religion of Mexico and it's very much a a very traditional leaning uh, government but he doesn't last long and over the next few years Mexico becomes a a republic a federal republic um, that goes in a much different direction than uh, Iturbide wanted to go in. Yeah I mean that kind of
1: you know, that's the another another question we're going to talk about is the is the changes that happen after independence. I mean, we'll we'll get to in a later podcast talking about uh, secularization and the mission system. But can you maybe just introduce us to that topic and how things start to change after independence?
0: Sure. Well, you know, there's a lag time too. And now, if we, if we talk about California, right? Um, there's a lag time of one or two years. Um, before news gets north, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so people are going about th- and remember California, Alta California, Baja California these are these are the far northern provinces. So it's the frontier. so people are off and it's very sparsely populated. So uh, people aren't paying a lot of attention to what's going on other in Mexico other than the fact that um, you know in 1810, because of the insurrection uh, and the state of civil war that's happening in Mexico, funds are cut off to help support the missions and support the presidios. So the thing that really hits people where it hurts is the fact that supplies aren't coming in uh, from Mexico, and and that's one thing that people often uh, get wrong is that supplies didn't come to California from Spain they came up from Mexico and so uh, if Mexico was in turmoil then supplies weren't coming and so that's when you have the beginnings of sort of this black market and American ships out of Boston would come around the horn you know and and sell both buy and sell goods uh, in California and that's how how people got uh got by right mm-hmm. and and then the the labor situation uh at the missions and the presidios gets much more difficult because now the missions are are asked to support the presidios because the presidios weren't self-sufficient there it's a military fort and some of the soldiers that lived there grew their own food but it just wasn't enough so now the missions have to supply materials and that's when you start getting a lot of uh, indigenous rebellions right because the the workload uh, becomes much heavier and um, native people become much more um, what's the word you know much more resentful about all of the work that they have to do so so yeah but in 1821-22 the news finally gets to Alta California that it's now part of Mexico and that causes a big division in society several divisions Uh, one is because the priests of the missions were by and large almost 99% having been born in Spain right so they didn't recognize the new Mexican government as legitimate Um, and so they held back they wouldn't Most of them wouldn't take the oath to the new Mexican government, and then the um, the local people, the local um, Hispanic people, right, um, looked on it with suspicion as well because they'd always been sort of the the poor younger brothers, way off in the hinterlands, and so they they didn't know what to think of these new um, this new government and then eventually what what begins happening is exactly um, the Mexican parliament passes laws saying you know um, if you're not Mexican i.e. if you are not born in Mexico you need to leave the country now um, there's there's a big history surrounding you know passing laws and then actually enforcing them right so they pass a lot of laws uh, they weren't always enforced But in in California, many of, especially in Northern California, many of the Franciscan priests, the Spanish Franciscan priests, left, went back to Spain. And so uh, Mexican-born priests, uh, Franciscan priests, were sent to take their place. And um, Mexican-born governors were sent to Alta California. And so um, with time... that that also caused a lot of friction and the congress in Mexico began to start investigating laws and passing laws about the missions um, because the original idea of the missions, well the idea of the missions was always that they were a transitory, a temporary institution and all over Latin America this had happened, missions would eventually become towns and um the mission church became the town church, and the Franciscan priest went away, and a parish priest would come. And so the idea was that the the Indian people there would then control that land. It didn't always happen um, so smoothly, but that's the general pattern. And so the Mexican Parliament decided, or Congress decided, that you know we've had missions in Alta California um, for twenty five odd years and um, it's time it's time to turn them into pueblos and then, that, then they started passing those laws there was a lot of resistance in Alta California to that uh, both from the Franciscans who said well the Indians aren't ready and from the local people who, who also kind of said the same thing but by the mid 1830s the the government in Mexico had had decided, look, at, we're not going to uh, push this off any longer. So 1833 and into 1834 was really the beginning of, okay, we're going to change the mission system. We're going to secularize it, the term. Yes.
1: Well, it seemed, it seems like you could maybe confuse it a little bit if you make it a purely theological conversation about, you know. But what you're describing is a is kind of the natural process that was going to happen anyway. And mm-hmm. they're just accelerating it because of, you know, uh, the need for these communities to be self-sustaining. Is that kind of what you're describing?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, in throughout Latin America, I mean, uh, yeah. To be fair, the Spanish government had also wanted to do the same thing, uh, but they... Um, but they had never really been able to, and so the Mexican government decided, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do this because this was the plan all along. Okay. And then the question, of course, was, well, is the situation ripe? Is is this the right time to do it? Are the native people ready? Um, and that's that's how the Franciscans sort of answered. They said, well, they're not ready yet. They're not ready to govern themselves. <laughs> yes, of course.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we've. We've had quite a few episodes talking about, you know, uh, different native groups in different regions of uh, California and uh, they'd been doing it okay for a while by then, but you know, you know, we're not, Good. we're not here to judge. We're just here to tell the story. Right. Um, ultimately. Right. right. And yeah. um, so I've, and on that note I've kind of structured this uh, story to kind of look at these different epochs you know these these different periods you know uh, I mean you've got the period of large mammals before indigenous people arrive across the uh, across the land bridge you know and then you've got this indigenous period uh, where uh, these travelers are, uh, controlling the environment. And then you have the Spanish period, and now we're transitioning into the Mexican period. But as a kind of a, a way to add some punctuation to this period, um, wh- why do you think it's important to understand uh, the Spanish history in Alta California uh, for your average listener? Um, why Why do you think this part of I mean, why don't you just start at 18, you know, why don't you just start at the end of the Mexican-American War um, and just start there? What, why is it important to study these the beginnings?
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, it goes back to two things. The first is the old, right, the old adage, those who don't understand history are, are cursed to repeat it. Uh, because when you really look at, Span- at the Spanish history of California, A lot of the dynamics that we experience now were there in the sense that um, it was a multicultural society. It wasn't just uh, Spaniards and Indians, let's say, but the very people who were called Spaniards who came north uh, from what is today Mexico were mixed ethnicity people. Not only that, but you had uh, constant uh, back and forth with Asia with the Pacific so you had the Manila Galleon that went uh to the Philippines to China to Japan and back and you also had Asian people um on those on those vessels coming in and even living in California so trade with Asia was always big and the Asian element as it still is you um you had uh like I said a multiracial society you had um you had all of the, the climatic things that we deal with. Fires, droughts, um, earthquakes. Uh, all of these things California has been dealing with for forever. So, you know, when, when we have a big earthquake, we have a big drought, we have, um, you know, disruptions. It's good to look back and say, wow, this, this was happening 200 years ago. Or when we think about uh, immigration... And we think how uh, we've been on... California has been a, a corridor of human migration for centuries... Well, even before the Spanish, you know, for maybe millennia, north and south. And then, you know, on a, on a simpler level, it just helps us to understand where we are. So uh, I live, um, you know, I was living in a town named Santa Clara. Why is it called Santa Clara? You know, teaching at San Jose State University... And then you realize that well, that's that's the that's a town that's a city that's been in California since 1777. So you understand that our roots are deep; they're much deeper. And you know, for me, I teach at a at a university um, has a large uh, uh, Latino pop- population, and for me, uh, it's important. When I teach classes like this, to, to show people, look, um, especially people who whose families came here recently, or who were born uh, in in Mexico or somewhere else, like this is your home. This isn't. You're not an alien. You're not a foreigner. Uh, this is this is your home. This is your place. So, um, so yeah, I think there. It just gives us a, uh, an understanding of the complexity and richness of, of what California is. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I I, I had a, little, a lot of fun researching
1: my episode on the mission in Santa Barbara. I've got uh, a brother that lives there, and uh, just learning about how they uh, dealt with their water system mm. and how they had to retrofit their church building after a major earthquake. Right. It's right, just, right. I was just feeling like, well, this could have happened— Last week, I mean, these are the topics that we talk about today yeah. is water and water and earthquakes, all right? <laughs> um, exactly. so, it's ne- so it's almost like, you know, thing, you know, things never really change, do they? You know, we're all, we're all still talking about the same things, right? I mean, that's only half true. Things have changed dramatically, but, uh, yeah, it, they change,
0: the, but they, they stay <laughs> the same.
1: Yeah. It's the Mark Twain quote about history rhyming, right? It doesn't be yeah. up, but it rhymes. That's um, good point. so I um, are there any things that you're specifically interested in in California history? I mean, I know that you're interested in the early parts. Uh, what, what are your interests these days? What are you exploring? Uh,
0: you know, actually, the last few years, uh, I've been really focused on the Mexican era. Uh, from So from 1821 on, because uh, there's a lot written about relatively speaking there's a lot written about the spanish um time in california but the the era when california was part of mexico is is a lot harder to get a grasp on there's a lot less written so i've been i've been looking particularly at the san jose santa clara area during that period that time period between um you know 1821 and up through the early years of statehood because that's the time when those big ranchos, right, are, there's a huge transfer of land from, from Mexican Californians to Anglo-American Californians, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm working on a book right now about a woman whose family inherited, or she and her brothers and sisters inherited a big rancho in what is today Walnut Creek, and how her life evolved uh, over, over dec- several decades because she um, she had a fascinating life. She was married briefly to a Prussian nobleman who had come uh, to Northern California. Then later she married an American. So she was widowed twice. Um, and she lived through Spain, Mexico, and US. So she saw it all and she, she saw her land uh, basically disappear you know, um, in a span of just a few years. So that's what I'm working on right now. That whole, that whole time period, that transfer between Mexico and the U S also because I was born, uh, in my early years in the East Bay. And so that's really the area that, um, that I grew up in. So it's interesting to delve into that. Yeah,
1: I really, I, I, and no matter where you are in California, I think it's, it's important to explore where you're from and, the rich history that's oftentimes, you know, people don't know about, I mean, where I am in Fresno, you know, there, there's a rich history and not a lot written about it. And, um, but there's, but there's unending documents, unending primary sources that uh, open up a whole world to you. And, um, you know, ultimately I think, you know, I, I think everyone needs to invest and understand the history of their own neighborhoods, essentially. And I yeah, think absolutely. That could do a lot, do a lot for, you know, especially given what we're talking about these days, you know, with, <laughs> with our protests going on, understanding yeah. our neighborhoods and exactly. who lives there and where they come from, you know, that's exactly. Uh, absolutely. some people just, I mean, we can talk about the East Bay, but some people just move into a neighborhood and, you know, they saw some uh, uh, home design on architectural digest and they're chain, they're tearing down a, hundred year old colonial, you know, that, or a bungalow that uh, has such a rich history. And it's just, yeah, Oh yeah. I mean, getting, like people the story of history, Briones. Yeah. getting people interested in history is tough, but I think once, when you do it, when people really get invested um, and then they appreciate and cherish something that has a legacy, it, it has so much meaning for their lives. And I agree. that's, that's just the way I see it. So I want to talk about Spanish for a second because mm-hmm. um, one of my challenges in this podcast is my ineptitude with the language. Yeah. Um, so, so how did how did you learn Spanish, and uh, do you have any uh, I don't want to say tips. That's not what I'm asking, but you know, uh, suggestions because it is it is uh, you know it would be it would be very important if you're living in California
0: to learn to speak Spanish. Yeah, uh, you should you should be bilingual if you live in California.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: You know, as somebody who I learned Spanish uh, late in life, you know, in my, in my college years, really, and, and into my 20s. So it's definitely doable. The impetus was, um, you know, my family background is Portuguese and Croatian. You know, it's a very, actually, California immigrant uh, story. Uh, So the idea of speaking other languages was was there, though we weren't raised speaking Portuguese or speaking Croatian. But I heard other languages growing up. But what really got me started interested in learning Spanish was um, I went to a new high school when I was a freshman in high school in the Napa Valley. And in the Napa Valley at that time, uh, in the 80s, you either owned a vineyard or you worked in one. And so, my father was a mailman, so I didn't really fall into either one of those categories. <laughs> but um, the people that really became my friends when I was new in, in school were um, all uh, children of uh, vineyard workers, you know, or they worked... My friend, Ramiro Lopez, he had his own... He and his dad and brother, they had their own business, uh, pruning vineyards, et cetera. So, I had all these friends who spoke Spanish, and I wanted to learn it, and... Um, so I took class, took high school, Spanish, uh, wasn't very motivated. Um, and I, I have a video uh, on LinkedIn where I talk about, you know, a, a good app is better than a bad teacher. So <laughs> <laughs> a bad teacher can demotivate you. But, yes. but my method is just you know, the cardinal rule of, of language acquisition is exposure, you know, uh, input. So input followed by practice. So the important thing is to understand why you want to learn it. So if you want to learn it to speak, primarily speak with people, um, then then you, you focus on that. You, you focus on uh, finding ways to practice speaking, right? With other people. Uh, uh, the other thing is, if you primarily want to learn it to understand, read, listen, then you do a lot of that, um, but to make to cut to the chase, I would I would get a a phrase book, like a, a, a and I mean a physical book that you carry around in your pocket, uh, a little small phrase book that tells you how to answer the phone, um, you know those kind of little things that you don't learn, a, an old uh, college textbook grammar textbook so you can get the basics uh, down, and then uh, so you want to practice those phrases with people. And then, uh, and then you want to get the basics of the grammar down—not to know it perfectly, but just to understand how things work. You know how you say I or you or he or she or it, and then, then go at it. Read a lot, and uh, watch. We're so lucky now with uh, with all the, you know, Netflix, Amazon Prime, etc. There's so many um, f- subtitled foreign uh movies and series you can watch watch those with subtitles and then just just get exposure exposure and practice you know it's 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 like a sport too it's like you know uh you know football player who who learns you got to learn the playbook but then you got to play a lot of games you know so that's that's the thing just keeping at it
1: yeah i i see that and that it, i think the challenge is uh, you know, some people can get stuck on their Duolingo app, or they're stuck on the whatever, and they it, and they gamify it to where they, you know, it's all about getting to that level, or you mm-hmm. know, having it tell you you've mastered it versus actually getting out and practicing. And for me, looking looking dumb or sounding dumb has never been a concern. It's you know, it's just it's finding that time to really have that uh, exposure. Yeah, um,
0: but it, yeah, it line. sounds
1: like it sounds like just getting out there and. And,
0: and trying with yeah, care. yeah, because it's a muscle, you know. You're, you're, if if your main goal is to speak, then you got to speak, you know. And and yeah, because sometimes people don't. Um, other, you know, native Spanish speakers, you know, maybe they don't want to, or but you got to like convince them. Hey, I really want to learn this, and and then they'll they'll do that, you know. They'll they'll come back at you. So, you, but you you also studied some Spanish in Spain, or
1: you did some work in Spain?
0: Yeah, I went to live in Spain. Uh, I did a study abroad year in Madrid, and that was um, really to solidify my fluency, you know. Um, I got to the point where I was good, you know, just by practicing a lot with people, taking a lot of classes and reading, etc. But I knew that if I ever wanted to go to grad school and be a professor of Spanish, I needed to get to native level, and for me, um, I had to jumpstart that by going and living in a place where I wasn't going to be hearing English, where I was going to be forced to speak Spanish all the time.
1: Well, uh, I hope if you take anything away from this podcast, it's the, it's, it's our challenge uh, to, to, to learn Spanish. If you're living in California, <laughs> learn Spanish. I think there'd be a lot of misunderstandings uh, in our society that would be remedied if if, if more of us were bilingual I um,
0: think so and it's never been easier and there's never been more access than yeah, now absolutely
1: alright so let's we're going to finish this by uh, uh, talking about some books um, so if you uh, I have a lot of people that are coming back to study of history who listen to this podcast and um, maybe want to explore subjects more at a, a deeper level than these 20 to 40 minute episodes what are some books that you'd recommend to people that you enjoy that cover California history?
0: You know, i look at my bookshelf. <laughs> the um, Just an overall, Cali- I mean, maybe you probably know this one, the overall California history, the, the one by Kevin Starr, I, I think uh-huh. is great. Um, that's just a great, and he's such a good writer that um, he doesn't always get everything perfect, but the narrative is so engaging that you, you don't care. <laughs> You know? Yes. Yeah, it's those narrative
1: historians that can be really great, like Barbara Tuckman, mm-hmm. um, where you, where, you know, because I, I think sometimes when people take college history classes, their professors might assign them some kind of analytical book, where right. it's looking at, you know, it's deconstructing political movements or whatever it is, and they're not actually getting the narrative. And so they walk away from the class not really knowing the kind
0: of the order of events of things that happened. Right. Right. You need to context, be able to contextualize things, just put them in their, in their correct timeline, for example. Yeah.
1: What about something early California history related that you've enjoyed?
0: You know, really for me, the two, uh, the two books that Rosemary Beebe and Robert Sinkowitz put together are really helpful. The first is called Lands of Promise and Despair. And those are all uh, primary sources. But they're put together, they're, they're selections from primary sources and, you know, original documents translated, but they're put together in a chronological order and they're, they they're, they have these great introductions to each of them, to each chapter. So those are wonderful. That one is wonderful, um, Lands of Promise and Despair. And the other one is called Testimonios, which is the first-hand accounts uh, by women, actually, um, in the 19th century. You know, the great historian Hubert Howe Bancroft sent guys around to interview surviving Californios. And, um, you know, all of those are in the Bancroft Library, the, those, those um, oral testimonies. But uh, Rosemary and Bob, what they did was they took selected ones, and like I said, all from women, And the reason I say that that's interesting is because you get a real picture into day-to-day life, you know, in early California. And so um, those, once again, each of them has a great um, introduction, context, background about this person's family. And then each of them tells her story, you know, about life in Spanish and Mexican California. Those are just great Uh, and their primary sources too. So you're, you're really getting things generally, you know, firsthand.
1: Okay. Well, um, before we go, um, we've already mentioned the, uh, frontier project, but where else can people find your work and can you give us a timeline of when your book's coming out?
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully the book will be out in the next couple of years. Um, I'm still researching it and, and writing. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the California Frontier uh, Project, CaliforniaFrontier.net. You can also uh, find me, uh, We California Frontier Project has a Facebook page. Um, you can find me at uh, San Jose State's um, uh, faculty page, SGSU, and my name. And I also have an Instagram account that I, I try and uh, uh, keep up. But, uh, oh, and then finally, you know, like you, I have a podcast, the California Frontier Project podcast, and we're just rounding out uh, season two um, with about 10 episodes. The last couple of ones will be dropping in the next couple of weeks. And, and that's, you know, in all those places, uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and, and Google Podcasts.
1: Yeah, I really recommend, uh, recommend the podcast. Uh, it's, it's one of our... It, I look at it as our, our sister podcast in this world, and uh, um, we're on the same mission, and the mission is to get people interested in their state's
0: history. So uh, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for interviewing me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the California Frontier Project website at www.CaliforniaFrontier.net. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion, make sure and drop me a line at Damien at CaliforniaFrontier.net.